Welcome to the 15th episode of our podcast series for advisors considering the independent space. Today's episode is what it takes to build an RIA. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. This podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on wealthmanagement.com, as well as iTunes and other resources. In our last episode, I had the privilege of speaking with Dory Fain, founder and CEO of AndWealth. She shared her journey to independence, choosing to go it alone, building her firm from the ground up. That is, she handled all of the research, planning, and negotiation to design what she envisioned was right for her business. Ten years later, she's proud of the successful firm she built, yet recognizes that the process isn't for everyone. Certainly, it's no small task to build a firm from scratch. There are those breakaway advisors who have no desire to take on the process, while others who aren't even aware of where to start. So I was hoping to shed some light on the latter. Joining me today is Matt Sonnen, founder and president of PFI Advisors, the El Segundo California-based operations and tech consultancy that specializes in transition support for billion-dollar breakaway teams. Matt will share what it takes to build an independent business and what questions you need to ask and have answered before you start your RIA firm. And Matt certainly knows what it takes. He learned the ins and outs of the wirehouse model at Merrill Lynch in the late 90s, but it was after his departure in 2005 that he got his introduction to the RIA space, having helped build the infrastructure for Luminous Capital, one of the industry's greatest breakaway success stories for transitioning a large Merrill Lynch team to the RIA channel prior to its founding in 2008. As COO and CCO at Luminous, Matt navigated the technology and compliance challenges as the firm grew from a billion seven upon launch to nearly six billion in assets in less than five years. In 2012, Luminous Capital was sold to First Republic Bank for more than a hundred million dollars. Matt then moved to Focus Financial Partners in New York City, where he helped breakaway teams and recently formed RIAs develop strategic initiatives to benefit from best practices, streamline operations, and improving efficiency. In 2015, Matt and his wife Larissa, a former AXA advisor, started PFI Advisors with a mission to further evolve the RIA industry from a collection of practices to businesses, and to be a continued voice in validating the industry as a legitimate landing spot for billion-dollar teams and their clients. Let's jump into the conversation. Matt, thanks so much for joining me today. Thank you. So you were the COO and largely the architect for the famed Luminous Deal. For those unfamiliar, Luminous is the name of the RIA that was founded in 2008 by top Merrill advisors Mark Sear and David Ho. Can you tell us a little bit about the role you played in that launch? Yeah. So 1997, that team had just left Goldman Sachs, joined Merrill Lynch. I was hired right out of school with zero experience to be their operations point person. So those four individuals were doing more business than the 40 collective advisors in the Beverly Hills branch. So from an ops perspective, 
the branch had more than doubled in size overnight. So they hired me, be their operations point person, help them navigate Merrill Lynch. They don't know who to call for an options trade or a mutual fund trade. So that was my, my first job. They were very good to me. Over eight years, I became a partner on their team. I never had business development responsibilities. I was chained to the desk all day to service the existing clients, which allowed them to go out and bring in more business. In 05, I lost my mind briefly and decided I wanted to leave the Golden Goose and go sell insurance. Stupid mistake, but was the pivotal point of my career because now I'm off doing my own thing. They called me two years later in 2007 and said, we want to start an RIA. We have this long business relationship with you. We trust you. You trust us. You go figure it out. We don't know how compliance works, custody works. You go build it and call us when you're ready. So I spent about seven months in late 07, early 08, just learning the RIA universe, built an, uh, a Los Angeles office, a San Francisco office, and then called them in May of 08 and said, we're ready to go. So they left with a billion seven of assets. And I stayed on as the COO and CCO for the remainder of the run. And was the transition smooth? At a high level, yes, it was definitely successful. 100% of the clients that we invited joined. So the quick answer is absolutely. There's always hiccups and uh, I wouldn't call them mistakes, but I did write a, a, an RIA Biz article a few years ago, top five mistakes I made while building Luminous Capital. So there's always little hiccups here and there, but when all the clients come, you can call it a success. I would agree. So you said they reached out to you and said, hey, we want to build an RIA. That was largely at a time before it was really in vogue to become an RIA. So what made them want to do it? What was their driving force? They're just very entrepreneurial in nature. They kept going to Merrill Lynch with investment ideas. Hey, we've uncovered this, and it may have been a mutual fund. It may have been a separately managed account. It may have been an alternative investment, whatever. But we found this investment that we think would be a great idea for our clients. Basically, what they're saying is that they're not paying to get access to the 17,000 Merrill Lynch advisors. So they weren't allowing advisors to show that to their clients. It just finally, the, the straw broke the camel's back. It happened one too many times. And they said, let's go uh, start our own firm where nobody's telling us what investments we can and can't show our clients. So Matt, you mentioned that the Luminous guys got the idea to be an RIA because there were gaps in the investment solutions they were able to offer clients. That was many years ago. Do you believe that that is still valid, that wirehouse advisors are limited in the things that they can access? And if so, what are some of those gaps? Yeah, the Luminous transition was 10 years ago today, actually, ironically. So it's been 10 years. And I guess we do still hear this from wirehouse advisors. I just can't communicate with my client the way I want to. I can't show them the investments and, and product solutions that I want to uh, here at the wirehouse. And I just can't be a true business owner here at the wirehouse. A lot of these advisors that are entrepreneurial, they say, I want operating leverage being on a fixed payout. As I grow my business, I'm still getting paid the exact same amount percentage-wise of my business. As if I'm a true business owner and I own the firm, I have operating leverage. As I grow my AUM, my expenses aren't growing dollar for dollar, and I'm going to pick up a profit margin as the, as the business grows. That doesn't happen in the wirehouses. Okay. So let me back up for a second. After you left Luminous, you went on to become a vice president at Focus Financial Partners. So clearly, you've got a lot of hands-on experience in building and launching RIAs. And it seems like all of that experience was the perfect segue to building your own business, PFI. So tell us what PFI is all about and the work that you do. Yeah. 
So when Luminous sold to First Republic, it obviously was such a big story, a big success. A lot of people told me at that point, hey, you should leverage this exposure and you should start your own firm. You should be a consultant to the, to the industry. And it was tempting, but I was a little gun shy just because while Luminous was successful, I only knew how one firm was doing business in the RIA space. So going to Focus Financial Partners, I was able to, I did a few uh, more breakaways from different wirehouses. So that was invaluable experience there, not just a Merrill Lynch breakaway. But probably more importantly, I got access to 35 of the larger RIAs in the country. I was able to do operations and technology consulting projects for them. And I worked very closely with a lot of the COOs and CEOs of those firms and was able to see how other firms were, were doing business in the RIA space. So after two and a half years there, I felt confident, okay, let's start our own firm. And we started PFI Advisors. Um, we call ourselves operations and technology consultants for the RA space. I mean, there's four channels of that. So we can start a firm from scratch, the breakaways. We can do just traditional ops and tech consulting for an existing firm. They haven't upgraded their technology stack in 10 years. They need some help with a new performance reporting system. And when you drop in a new performance reporting system, is it going to be integrated with the rest of your system? So we can do that work. We do some M&A work, again, from an ops and tech perspective. So we can help a would-be buyer build some infrastructure and some scalable processes and systems before they go into the M&A arena and try to acquire. Or we get a frantic call from a buyer saying, I just acquired a $120 million firm. They have these technology systems. We have those technology systems. How do we integrate? So we can do that work. And then we also have a retainer-based service where we can just be a, uh, a call a friend, so to speak, for COOs. We have templates and things, and we can kind of guide them through their COO responsibilities. Got it. It's amazing. This cottage industry that's been born to support the independent space is all new in the last 10 years and so incredibly valuable. So congratulations on building what is clearly a necessary uh, model. Thank you. So let's pivot for a second. The calculus for most advisors who are uber entrepreneurial and interested in building their own firm is whether to use a service provider like Dynasty Financial Partners, take on a strategic or capital partner like Focus Financial Partners, or use the custodian directly as their quarterback to help them pull together every vendor solution and piece of technology they will need. Can you weigh in for a minute on the differences between these options and tell us where PFI might fit into the equation? Yeah, everyone you've mentioned, plus many others, there's, there's other strategic acquirers, there's other platform providers, all of them do a great job shepherding advisors into the world of independence. I think it just comes down to the size of the team that's going independent and the economics of those various models. A strategic partner, so we're just sort of using focus as the example, I call that a shark tank deal. That wirehouse advisor is standing in front of the judges <laughs> and saying, I need help getting out of the firm I'm at. I'm willing to give up X percent of my company for your resources. And the strategic partner says, great, we're equity partners now. We're going to split bottom line earnings every year based on whatever our ownership percentage is. And for larger teams, let's say a billion dollar team doing 10 million of revenue, call it 6 million of bottom line earnings. That's a multi-million dollar commitment they're making just for some help in getting into the independent spectrum. So the service of the platform providers come in, hopefully that they're hoping they come in after the, the strategic acquirer presents and they say, well, that's crazy. Don't sell equity, sign a service contract with us and you can plug into our infrastructure 
and we've done all the hard work for you. You don't have to figure out which reporting provider is best, which, which CRM is best. Um, and again, I think that is a great solution for advisors of a certain size. If you're talking to a billion dollar firm, that service contract is basis points times AUM. So I don't know exactly what the number is, but for easy math, let's just, let's say it's 10 basis points. If I'm a $1 billion firm, that's a $1 million per year times however many years that service contract is. That's a multi-million dollar commitment when you just needed some help to get out of the wirehouse. So I think everyone does a great job in guiding advisors out. It's just where the economics fall, the size of your team and the different uh, pricing mechanisms that these firms are using. So I read a piece that your wife, Larissa, wrote in June of last year, and she said that billion-dollar teams that have scale on their own may find that they can get more competitive pricing if they contract directly with the individual vendors and choose their own technology suite. These teams may prefer to pay a simple one-time consulting fee over an ongoing fee to a service provider. Can you weigh in on the economics affecting mega breakaway teams? Yeah, I always use this analogy. So when you buy computer equipment, there's a lot of technology firms that say, we have a contract with Dell. We buy so much equipment through Dell every year that we get volume discount pricing with them. And we are going to charge you a markup on that equipment that we're selling you. But our discount with Dell is so low that the discount plus our markup is still less than what you're going to pay if you went to Dell directly and bought three laptops. That's basically what these platform providers are doing. They're saying with our network of RIAs, we are buying in volume from all of the various vendors that that service the RIA industry. And for the, call it 200 to $600 million advisor, I think the math probably works. The discount that they get plus the small markup, the math, it's still better than if that $200 million advisor went to those vendors directly. What Larissa wrote about is, a billion-dollar firm qualifies for that volume discount all on their own. Not the volume discount, but the size of the firm. They qualify for the discount. So they're getting it anyway and not paying any kind of markup. So they're accessing all of these various vendors, the custodians, the reporting providers, the CRMs, et cetera. And their pricing is probably going to wind up being better if they go direct. Interesting. But then there's the amount of work, the hassle factor involved. And while some people will make the decision whether to use a service provider or go direct to the custodian based solely on the dollars, others will do it based upon the amount of time and energy that is required. So if someone chose to go independent without using a service provider and perhaps not even using a consultant, How much work is involved? How much work does the custodian do and how many hours or what kind of time commitment would be required of the team to go it alone? It's going to be a time commitment any route you take. (laughs) You are starting a firm from scratch. Um, It's just uh, how much leverage you're doing on your own versus leveraging others. So if you're using the custodians directly, they do an amazing job and they're investing a lot of money. They're hiring internal consultants that can help guide you through some of the decisions that need to be made. I think, I don't know if it's necessarily a regulatory problem or if it's just a business decision. I just think that custodians can't go super deep in certain areas. So when you're building out your office space, I don't think the custodians are willing or able to get down to the granular details of what carpet would you like? Do you want a treadmill desk? Do you want standing desks? What size TV did you want in the conference room? I mean, I had a conversation in the last 24 hours. Did you want a Keurig or an espresso machine in your office? So I I just don't think they get super deep in the office build out 
they have strategic relationships with a lot of the different vendors. So I don't know while they can hand you the phone numbers and tell you which reporting providers are out there, which CRMs, I don't know if they're going to be on the phone for every one of those demos with the team and walking them through deeply what the differences are between the different technologies. I don't think they can do your billing for you, your first quarter billing. I don't know if they're going to touch any of your billing files and help load in all of your new clients to your new RIA. So it's just a matter of they do a great job at a high level. I just don't know how deep they can go. So again, the strategic acquirers, this, the platform providers or consultants, I think all of us can go a little bit deeper than the custodians are going to go. Got it. And so this may be a tough question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. How many hours approximately should an advisor or team allocate to pre-break preparation if they weren't using a service or capital partner? I think the hours are going to be about the same across all of them. I mean, you still need to figure out where your office is going to be located and the furniture and everything else. It's about four months of work, I would say, four to five months before you resign. Most of that is on office build out. So I would probably throw in, and it's a high number, and I'm, I tell people this all the time, I would say 500 hours of work over several months. Got it. That's very helpful. It seems that Every advisor, at least the ones we're talking to, are thinking about leaving their firm to go independent. It certainly doesn't mean they're going to do it, but they want to understand what it's all about. And the biggest question that comes up is, how do I get from here to there? How do I recreate the products and services that have always been handed to me at my firm? How do I make it happen? How much time is involved? What are the questions I wouldn't know to ask, et cetera? So if I can, I'm going to ask you a set of questions and maybe you can just quickly answer and tell us how you access the categories we're going to talk about. Is that fair? Sure. Okay. How do you access alternatives and lending as an independent? Those are the two big ones that uh, I alluded to it earlier. Still in 2018, there's still a lot of brainwashing that's going on in the wirehouses and, and advisors are told, yeah, that, that doesn't even exist at all in the RIA landscape. You're not working for a bank you'll have no lending capabilities as, as an RIA. You will not have access to alternative investments. We've actually done two different white papers on this topic. So one specifically to how to access alts and one specifically how to access lending. You, I'll be honest, you will not get paid on these products like you do at the wirehouse, but you will actually have more access. You'll have more opportunities to show different alternative investments to your clients. If you're of the right size, you can go directly to a lot of these asset managers, or there are platforms out there that are dedicated to providing access to alternative investments for RIAs. And you know, we were talking about earlier, they have volume discounting with these asset managers and, and you can do hedge funds, private equity, et cetera, through these platforms. And then lending, same thing. You're not gonna get paid on lending like you do as a bank employee, but you will have more options to show your clients. And that is the key, is the ability to create competition for price and service to essentially shop the street to get potentially more solutions to show your clients. Exactly. Theoretically, if you have more options, more solutions to offer prospects, you will have more opportunity to land clients. Your AUM will be higher over two, three, four year period as an RIA than as a wirehouse advisor. Therefore, you are getting paid. Uh, <laughs> as an RIA, but the product by product, the big ticket quote, big ticket doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. How do you create a performance report as an independent? 
advisors are very excited when they get to see the technologies that are available for, for performance reporting. There's a whole slew of, of uh, performance reporting vendors that are out there. We're actually writing this article right now. What's interesting is the wirehouses are slowly starting to adopt some of these same technologies. So when we meet with a potential breakaway, they say, well, how am I going to do performance reporting? And I'll say, oh, well, based on what you're telling me about your book and how you want to display things to your clients, I think X is the right solution. This is the right reporting provider. And they immediately sit up straight and they say, oh my God, we have that at the wirehouse. We use that technology. It's not very good. I say, really? I don't, it sounds like the perfect solution for you. I don't understand what you're saying. We do, we finally, I have to do some coercion, but finally get them to do a demo. And they go, son of a gun. This same technology is available at the wirehouse, but they're blocking 70% of the bells and whistles of the technology. <laughs> it's, it goes to that whole, you know, managing to the lowest common denominator. They can't let the rookie advisor have access to certain bells and whistles within the technologies. So the experienced 20-year vet that's managing a billion dollars doesn't have access to those solutions. So even if the logo is the same in the wirehouse as the RIA, advisors are always shocked at uh, the technologies available to them. Interesting. How do you trade as an independent? As a quote, operations and technology consultant, people think I sell a lot of technology. This is the one piece breakaways I think they get sold high end, very robust trading systems. And sometimes they don't need it. If you're not running models, if you don't need to trade across your entire book, the custodians have very good trading technologies. If the client calls and says, can you raise $50,000? I need to send a wire. You can enter that trade right through the custodial interface. You don't need a big trading system. But if you are running model portfolios and you want to sell Apple and buy Google with those proceeds and you want to do it in two clicks across 500 account numbers, there are uh, ranging from very basic to extremely sophisticated trading systems available in the RA space. Got it. How do you access research as an independent? So this is the, one of the funniest stories I have is as working with breakaway advisors. Many years ago, we were told by an advisor, I can't go independent. I said, well, why can't you go independent? And he says, one of my models is based on the research here at the, at the firm. I can't go independent. I, I won't have access to the research. I'm not an employee of that firm anymore. I said, what's the name of the research analyst? Give me 30 minutes. And I emailed the report to his Gmail account and, and he was just shocked. He says, I don't know. I don't understand how you get this. You have access <laughs> to not only your same firm's research, but now again, you're able to send reports to your clients from all across Wall Street. So the options are larger for RIAs. And how about marketing and branding? We've been focusing on the consultants that manage breakaways, but there is a whole litany of marketing and branding firms specializing in not only financial services, but in the RA space and can help advisors. And this is one of the pieces they're most excited about is I can tell my story for the first time. So they can really help them with their logo design, the naming of the firm, the brand uh, messaging, and then just the nuts and bolts of building a website, building the um, LinkedIn, you know, the social media bios and things. So um, yeah, there, there's a lot of help there available. What about life after a launch? What's involved other than compliance on an ongoing basis for a breakaway team to now be responsible for in order to run the business? And I guess what I'm asking is, is it necessary to hire a COO? I think one of the biggest mistakes that breakaways make is, let's just say you have three partners, three rain make at your firm. Their main job is bringing in clients and servicing clients. When they start a firm for the first time, one of them says, I'm CEO. One of them says, I'm COO. And the other one says, I'm CCO. 
But the economics obviously are driven by client service and business development. And so that is what they're going to focus on, of course. So I think that, and there's an inflection point somewhere in that, you know, I don't know if it's 600 million, 700 million, 800 million, but somewhere in that range, I think you do need someone who is 100% dedicated to the day-to-day running of the firm, the administration of the firm, the HR, the recruiting and developing and retaining of your employees, just the nuts and bolts of managing your technology vendors. I do think that they do want to hire somebody whose main job is not business development or client service, but is just going to focus on the running of the firm. And I think you can save yourself money. You make it one person that's a COO and a CCO. I'm biased. That was my role at Luminous. But I think that rather than hiring two different people, I think one person, half the time I didn't know if I was wearing my CCO hat when I was doing a certain task or where I was wearing my COO hat. So those are so tied into one another. I think one person can handle both of those tasks. So speak of compliance, how much of a burden or what's involved in managing compliance for um, an RIA firm? That is one of the big things that keeps these guys and girls up at night thinking of uh, starting a, an RIA is, oh, geez, I've never had to deal with compliance before. I don't know if I, if I want to take that on. There are a lot of great outsource CCO consultants out there. It's basically having a law firm on retainer. And so again, I think if you hire someone who's dedicated and sitting at their desk all day, not thinking about where's my next client coming from, or how do I service this existing client, but thinking about the operations and compliance of the firm, you can call these firms every day, all day and ask certain questions. Hey, we have a new prospect. They want the client agreement to say this. Can I make that change? What are the ramifications? Hey, we're thinking of changing this technology. What does that do for cybersecurity? You have a call a friend available to you. So it's not as daunting having that security blanket as long as you have somebody that's really thinking about it. If somebody says, hey, let's create a new product here at the RIA, somebody within the organization needs to think, hmm, we probably should place a call to our compliance consultant and just make sure that doesn't affect anything for our ADV. So as long as you're mindful of it, it's not a black hole. Got it. And how long does it usually take for a breakaway to be cash flow positive, given that he needs to be prepared to float the operating expenses of the business for a period of time upon launch? Yeah, it's tough to answer specifically just because some advisors, they say, we're starting an RIA, let's throw two trading desks in the middle of the room and get a couple of monitors in here and we're off to the races. Others say, no, 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 no. If our clients are going to join our firm. We want our office space to look and feel like the branch office that we're coming from. We want mahogany, everything. We want a rotating logo in the lobby. (laughs) I mean, I've seen some crazy things. So it's tough to say because how much money are you spending to build out the office space, right? And then obviously a billion dollar firm, their first billing run is going to raise more money than a $200 million firm. So it's tough to say exactly, but Your first billing cycle will be three months after launch and part of it will be a look back and part of it will be billing going, you know, for that quarter going forward. That will probably at three months in, you'll be around 80% of your clients will have joined by then. It's not until really the second billing cycle. So six months out that you've hit your full run rate. It's right around there usually that people are cash flow positive with these nuances of how much did you spend for the the waterfall and and (laughs) and the lasers and things in the lobby. Got it. One final question. You mentioned the some of the pitfalls or in hindsight, some of the things you might have done differently in building Luminous or any other of the breakaway transactions you've managed. Can you share one or two of them, things that you'd share with our audience that you might have done differently? 
So this is a silly answer for a transition consultant, quote, transition consultant saying, hey, outsource a lot of this to me. But I think that was the biggest mistake I made as the ops guy building the infrastructure of an RIA. I relied too much on, oh, you can outsource that. Oh, you can outsource that. Oh, we don't have to worry about that on, on site. Somebody needs to be responsible for those firms that you're outsourcing. And a lot of those vendors need to be talking to one another. And so you need to be quarterbacking that. I thought, oh, well, I don't need to know how the phone system works because I'm not a phone guy. I'll just make sure that, the, you know, that my outsourced phone vendor is taking care of it. But when the phones go down, you need somebody on site that can at least run into the server room and unplug it and plug it back in. <laughs> you need to know a little bit yourself. So that's a high level mistake that I made. Somebody on site has to be taking responsibility to manage the, the various vendors and things. The other one specific to the Luminous, which I do not recommend for anybody. I don't know why we did this. We put the office in the same elevator bank as the Merrill Lynch branch that we were walking out of. <laughs> and the whole build, you know, you're building out office space, everything and trying to go through the service elevator. I don't recommend that. It just adds extra stress to the, uh, the whole process. I would say get different office space. <laughs> Interesting. I love it. Matt, thank you so much. Really, really helpful and insightful. And we wish you a lot of good luck. Thank you so much. Matt painted a realistic picture of what it takes to build an RIA firm. Most advisors think that making the decision to go independent itself is the only important one to be made. But the truth is that perhaps the decision that will have the greatest impact on a successful launch, the time to cash flow positive, and the overall value of the firm starts with whether you do it yourself or hire a consultant or service provider. In our next episode, I'll be speaking with Nathan Backrack of Simply Money Advisors. Nathan's name is well known not just for his firm's success, but also for his radio show and podcast that he and his partner started back in the 90s. Nathan will be talking about an important topic for advisors who already have their own independent firms, as well as those considering the space. What does the end game look like for independent firm owners? Who are the buyers? We'll explore how Nathan solved for scale and succession. It's a vital conversation, so I hope you'll join us. Until then, I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for some valuable content. And if you're not already a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. Feel free to email or call me if you have any specific questions, and I can always be reached at 908-879-1002 or by email mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. Thank you for listening. I also want to thank wealthmanagement.com for sharing this podcast with their viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.